If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The Normans famously conquered England in 1066. But did you know there was also a short-lived Norman kingdom in North Africa? In his new book, Empires of the Normans, Makers of Europe, Conquerors of Asia, Professor Levi Roach explains how the Normans established a presence in southern Italy and Sicily, and from there expanded south into Africa. David Musgrove called Levi to find out more. And his first question was to ask how the Normans got their foothold in Italy and Sicily. One of the things that I'm trying to do in the book is to show that the Normans really are not just a kind of French and English phenomenon. And in particular, in the Mediterranean, they had a major impact starting from this initial colony in um, southern Italy, as you suggest. So what we have is around the year 1000, we have first indications of Normans travelling through southern Italy, and in some cases possibly starting to settle, occasionally perhaps being employed as mercenaries. These early groups seem to have mostly been pilgrims on their way to and from the Holy Land, um, between Normandy and the Holy Land, who in a few cases helped out local um, uh, Christians against um, uh, Islamic enemies. Sicily in this period is under Islamic rule, as are parts of southern Italy. But out of these kind of initial uh, uh contacts, which are rather hard to uh, establish in detail, we start seeing a coherent colony developing in the 1030s around Aversa in Campania. And it's from that initial colony that we start getting a real Norman presence. The earliest settlers were there as mercenaries. So they were simply in employ of local Lombard princes. They, they didn't have their own kingdom there at all. 
But over time, they move from being mercenaries to being lords in their own right and slowly eat up all of what was the old Lombard principalities, as well as their Byzantine um, and Islamic neighbors, till eventually all of southern Italy uh, and Sicily is under uh, Norman rule by about the 1090s. And I've probably jumped in slightly hastily here. So, so these are these are people, Normans, as you said, coming from what is now Normandy. How long have they been established in in Normandy by um, uh, by this point? Well, not all that long in many respects. So they arrive in Normandy in the early 10th century, probably around 911 or so. That's the traditional date given. It's not 100% secure. But sometime around the 910s, we start seeing settlement from Scandinavia into what becomes Normandy. Uh, the name Normans and Normandy comes from Northmen. So it's a reference to their Viking heritage. By the year 1000, by the time they're coming to southern Italy, they've become uh, thoroughly Francophone. So they're now French-speaking, behaving very much like their neighbours in northern France. But one of the things that probably is playing some role in their expansion into places like southern Italy is this uh, heritage um, uh, from Scandinavia, that they are immigrants, in a sense, to France in the first place. And they show a tendency to be um, uh, particularly keen and willing to go on foreign ventures. And that memory that they'd come to and conquered uh, what became Normandy and northern France stays with them. So in a sense, why not go and conquer Italy? Why not go and conquer England? Uh, so that's almost certainly part of the story here in terms of why we start seeing the strong uh, Norman presence. Another thing that is kind of going on in the background is the early 11th century in Normandy is actually a period of considerable political disruption particularly the 1030s when things are really getting going in Italy, is when we're seeing a lot of political upheaval and particularly the early years of William the Conqueror that actually see he's a, a, a boy duke um, and see a lot of kind of uh, 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 political uncertainty there, a lot of uh, internal conflict. And that's probably what's also driving some of these people to decide that they're, they're better off seeking their fortunes further afield. That's interesting. So our, our British listeners will probably f- be familiar with that, how that political instability kind of drove William the Conqueror, as you said, who, who became the Conqueror to, to, to reach uh, the powers that he did and then went on to conquer England in 1066. But we don't tend to think of it so much in the context of people uh, moving eastwards, do we? No, and there's the, a back and forth between the two. So it's probably partly political instability that gets the that, that movement going in southern Italy. But equally then later, William of Malmesbury, one of our main sources for William the Conqueror's reign, says that one of the things that drove him to conquer England was competition with Robert Guiscard, who was winning so many lands in southern Italy. And he said that it would be a shame, it would be a dishonour upon him if a man of lower birth were to win higher acclaim. So he's clearly well aware of the conquest going on there. Um, uh, and it's one of the things that probably is also then inspiring him and his men to think, you know, if if, if our relatives can do it in, in and our countrymen can do it in southern Italy, why can't we do it across the channel? You mentioned Robert Giscard then. Um, do you want to just tell us a bit more about him and, and some of the other key figures in the in the Italian adventures of the Normans? Yeah. So initially, we just have this kind of group of mercenaries without necessarily a, a very, very clear uh, leadership based at Aversa, of being led particularly by Reinald, this individual. But in the course of the 1030s, a group, uh, a family known as the Hautevilles start arriving, and they end up becoming the ones who really drive Norman expansion in the south. And what it is is Tancred de Hauteville was a, a relatively low-level Norman nobleman who had uh, a large number of sons from two different wives, and 
a large portion of them then seek their fortune in southern Italy. So first, the first of them to come to prominence is a chap called William Ironarm, who then becomes the leader of the Norman force as it kind of establishes its independence in the 1040s. Um, but the individual who's really associated with conquering southern Italy is the chap Robert Guiscard, who's William Ironarm's um, younger half-brother. And he's the one who really establishes a firm political presence there and becomes kind of known as the conqueror, if you will, uh, of southern Italy. But it's a much more ad hoc manner because the groups that have come to southern Italy, unlike the Norman conquest of England, where it's, you know, uh, one duke's vision and one army comes over, it's actually lots of different ad hoc groups. So Guiscard's power has to be built up piecemeal over other groups, some of whom had come over with him, some had not. Um, uh, And there is this kind of internal competition that's partly what's driving them on in a rather different way from what we see in the British Isles. Okay. Now, I mentioned in my introduction that I wanted to talk about Africa um, and Norman activity in Africa. So we've talked about Sicily and southern Italy there a bit. And those, if you if you know your map of the Mediterranean, you'll know that it's not that far from uh, Sicily down to North Africa. So what's going on in Northern Africa at the time? What sort of political setup is, is, is in place there? So the key background here is that Sicily and parts of southern Italy, as already noted, are under Islamic rule when the Norman presence is first established. They're under the authority of the Kalbid Amirs, who are themselves under the loose political authority of the Fatimid Caliphs, who are the big power in kind of northern African parts of the Middle East in this period. They're probably the leading um, Islamic political power at the time, starting from 969 when they conquer Egypt. They originally come from uh, central North Africa. Um, but they then take over Egypt and they set themselves up near modern Cairo. So the Fatimids are the kind of big overlords we're thinking of. But in practice, um, the big building block provinces under their authority are ruled largely independently by uh, Amirs or Emirs, as they're, they're, they're known in English. And we have a group known as the Kalbids in Sicily. And then in North Africa, we have the Zirids just across the sea from them. And so the, we have these dynasties that are largely independent under the overlordship of and that they send tax revenue back to and bow to politically uh, the authority of the Fatimids who are based in Egypt. So so given that um, mutual religion, Islam, uh, both in Sicily and North Africa, was there a lot of um, communication, travel and transport between Sicily and, and North Africa? Yes, absolutely. And it's one of the things that's easy to forget kind of with modern political maps in our minds that Sicily could just as easily be part of North Africa um, as it is of Italy. So um, uh, a place like um, uh, Syracuse, for example, in Sicily is nearer to North Africa geographically than it is to Rome. So it's really just across the sea, and particularly having been both under um, uh, the authority of the Fatimid Caliphate, there's a very uh, intense trade between these regions. And perhaps most crucially, North Africa is dependent upon grain supplies from Sicily. So it's also a province that needs for its survival regular shipments, regular trade with its neighbours to the north. Um, And the question that arises, of course, when the Normans then start conquering this and eventually completely conquer Sicily in 1091 is... What will happen to this now that it's under Christian hands? And in the short term, the answer is not much happens to this. That the Normans are coming in, but they're very much a small minority, and they have no particular desire um, to rock the boat in terms of this. The grain shipments to North Africa make them considerable profits. So as long as they can tap in on it, this now, and have the profits go to them rather than the old Calvin rulers they seem happy in the short term, at least, to continue with business as usual. And so that's the kind of story in the initial stages of Norman conquest and its aftermath. So was there no particular religious 
friction then between the Christian Normans and the and the Islamic population. There almost certainly was some friction at some points. So it's important not to imagine these as being kind of modern, uh, multicultural, multi-religious, uh, multi-ethnic communities where they took pride in these sorts of things. What there was, though, was a significant element of pragmatic toleration. There's a large Islamic minority, in some parts of Sicily majority, that remains in place, and you can't replace that overnight, even if you wanted to. Um, and there's no indication that they wanted to. There's also significant pockets of uh, Greek-speaking Orthodox Right. So the Normans themselves are what we now call Catholics. They, they follow the Latin rite. They speak French. They are very much a minority here. So they don't particularly want to upset these groups unnecessarily. So what they do is gradually favor Christians over Muslims where possible. And within the Christians, they favor the Catholics, the Latin rite over the Greek rite where possible. But it's a really a very slow transition of hundreds of years that eventually you move to a situation where there are no more or almost no Muslims left. But it's a matter of very, very slow movement that way. So in terms of, you know, 10 years after Norman conquest, the makeup of the population is very little different at all. What is the case, though, is that the senior political leadership becomes largely Christian. And when people who are of Islamic descent um, uh, uh, become senior advisors, as in some case they do, they are always converts. It's hard to know how genuine that conversion always was. Sometimes it was probably very much pragmatic for their own career advancement. But it still is the case that if you're going to be a leading advisor of a count or a duke or of the eventual kings of Sicily, then you do need to be Christian. So there, there are these kind of pressures in that direction. And certainly at times when it's convenient, the Normans play up this religious element. So they get papal backing for their conquest of uh, Sicily because they're fighting Muslims. It can be used to galvanize their forces. But it's quite clear this isn't actually like the Crusades that are going to be happening only a few years later in the Middle East, that it's actually primarily about power politics, about conquest, about a land grab, not about, um, uh, uh, as it were, sticking it to the Muslims. So we've got a period where there's pragmatism and by the sound of things, uh, sort of mutual relationships uh, going on. At what point do uh, the Norman rulers in Sicily start to become interested in militaristic adventures in North Africa? So the key thing that happens within the Norman domains of southern Italy is a change within the Hauteville dynasty. So Robert Guiscard is the one who'd driven these conquests, and he was based primarily in Apulia and parts of northern Calabria. That's in the boot of Italy. But uh, particularly in terms of Apulia, we're thinking the southeast, so facing across the Balkans. And so once he's, in fact, finished conquering uh, southern Italy, the next place he attacks are the Byzantines and the Byzantine domains in the Balkans. So that's the kind of natural way he looks out because he's based on that southeast coast of Italy. But within a couple of generations, in 1127, his immediate male line dies out and is replaced then by the line founded by his younger brother, um, Roger I of Sicily. And he basically delegated conquering Sicily to his younger brother and had set him up as a largely independent count there. So Roger ran Sicily anyway for, his, uh, for Robert Guiscard. And when Robert's descendants then die out in the male line. It's Roger's son, Roger II, that then takes over all of these domains together. But he centralizes them on Sicily now. So it's now a Norman polity in southern Italy that is based in Sicily, not based in Apulia. And if you're based in Sicily, that very much changes your perspective. You're no longer very interested in the Balkans. That, that's not a very appetizing prospect. The obvious prospects are right across the Mediterranean in North Africa, where you already have strong trade links, already have strong diplomatic links. And so where possible then, 
Roger II is starting to chip away at this. And so, for example, in the 1120s, he's keen to seize Malta, which is a halfway house too. They're starting to edge into um, that. And for him, obviously, if he can take North Africa and Sicily, he's then controlling both sides of the Mediterranean and can tap into also rich trade, not only between those regions, but passing through them in either direction. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But it certainly is entirely conceivable that in a different historical uh, universe that North Africa would have become part of the Catholic world and would have remained so potentially into the 19th, 20th centuries, just as it's entirely conceivable that Sicily could have remained Muslim. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So did, did Roger sort of seek any sort of particular justification for um, for his expansionist aims, or did he just do it? He does, though some of it's probably uh, uh, self-serving and superficial. But the key thing he can work with is the fact that he has historically, as has his father, had good relations with these Zirid rulers of North Africa. So in the 1070s, when Roger I is still busy conquering Sicily, he's actually invited to make an attack on Madia, the capital of uh, uh, the Zero province, of Ifriqiya, as it's known, of, of North Africa, that is. And he's not interested in the least. He wants none of this. He's just signed a treaty with them. He's making good money from the trade. He still has bits of Sicily left to conquer. And he says, no, 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 you know, it's the Genoese and the Pisans who want to do this. You want to do it, do it yourself. This is going to just create too much problem for me. And so they go ahead and do it. And it's not very successful, in fact. So he was very wise not to have got involved. Uh, and that's very much the attitude early on for Roger II as well. He's interested in expanding where he can, but it's very much opportunistic. But what happens is we start getting in the 1140s a period of significant decline in power and authority for the Zerids themselves um, uh, and internal divisions. And so they actually look to the rulers of Sicily, the Sicilian Normans, for help. And Roger II is more than happy to help and to start chipping away bits and bits. And then eventually he gives up the pretense. And so as we move through the 1140s, the help becomes ever more heavy-handed. Um, and the Zerids kind of realize it's a problem a bit too late, but they've also have so many other enemies internally. It's not, not really clear they, that, that, if, that they could have just said no to the Normans and it would have all been fine. Somebody else would probably have toppled them. So they're in real trouble. Um, and at a certain point, Roger II realizes, actually, rather than propping them up, I'd be better off replacing them. Um, and he's helped here by the acquiescence of the Fatimids, because the Fatimids basically just want stable rule there. They don't mind, for the time being, at least it being Roger, provided it provides that political stability. So they're happy to turn a blind eye. And that's the other thing that opens the door from him. The Fatimids do not then march in and try to stop him. I'm slightly disappointed that you didn't uh, flag up Roger I's earthy response to that Mardia campaign, which you talk about in your book. You, you're going to have to mention it for us. Yes. Okay. So famously, um, uh, Ibn al-Athar, the later, the later Muslim chronicler, 
reports that when he's invited and where, where, when, where, where, when these emissaries come to him and say, come, come on, let's, let's go attack North Africa, um, his advisors all say, yeah, yeah, let's do this. What a great idea. Let, let's take Mali, which is this big populous city, the, the capital of the North African province. Um, and he's reported, according to Ibn al-Athar, to have lifted one leg and let out a thunderous fart. Uh, and thereafter to have uh, explained that this flatulence was better advice than that proffered by his wiser heads at court. Um, uh, and goes on then to actually explain and justify. And the reason is that, you know, we're, we're too close to them. We're already their allies. For the Pisans and Genoans who are based in if much further north, they can attack and lose as they do and, and not face any backlash. But for us, we'll face the backlash if we lose. And equally, if we win, they're the bigger maritime powers. They'll, they'll actually get all the profits. So we're kind of in a lose-lose scenario is his read of the situation. Excellent. I don't, I don't think we could have done this interview without uh, without including that little anecdote. Um, so, so look, let's go back to Roger the Second. So, how far and how fast did he get in uh, in his African um, military campaigns? So he's able to basically take over all of what was this old province of Ifriqiya itself, based ultimately on the the, the Roman province of, of North Africa there. Uh, from the zero, so he basically replaces them relatively rapidly. It's particularly as we move through the mid to late um, 1140s. So 1146, um, he takes Tripoli. And then in 1148, he successfully takes Madia, this capital. And so at that point, basically, then all other opposition pretty much disintegrates. And he is now established lord of what were all of the old Zirid domain. So a really substantial piece of territory, mostly in terms of its cities uh, along the coastline, as is still the case for North Africa, but but, but going along um, uh, uh, the coastline of modern um, Algeria uh, into Libya. So, And that was a pretty pretty speedy campaign? Yeah, so he's able to establish his, the first efforts Still nominally helping the Zirids, but but not necessarily much help start in the early 1140s. But the big efforts ramp up in 1146 with the taking of Tripoli, and by 1148, 1149, uh, the dust is pretty much settled, and the Normans are are pretty well established there. And does Roger start styling himself king of North Africa? What what, what does he call himself? So not in his standard documents, but there is some evidence that, so if, if you're based in Sicily, for example, he doesn't start calling himself suddenly King of Africa or, or, or anything like that. He still just continues with his standard uh, titulature. But there is some evidence that in some of his Arabic documents, he starts to experiment with the title of uh, a ruler or king of Africa using this term Malik. Um, uh, in terms of that. So there is clearly some real ambition there. We have a new archbishop for Africa, for this province of North Africa, is consecrated by the Pope. So they're all very much getting uh, in on it in terms of that. He also strikes coinage there, crucially. So that that, that big sort of uh, symbolic uh, uh, assertion of authority is made that coinage is now issued in Arabic, but in uh, Roger's name. Okay, and and then so how long does this um, how long does this last? How long does Roger and the Normans manage to maintain their foothold in Africa? Not very long at all, and the answer to this is lo- and that the reason why is largely to do with wider political constellations. It's it's always kind of a bit of an opportunistic land grab, and it kind of sticks out a bit from his other domains. So, chances probably weren't great for the, this new Norman kingdom of North Africa. But what really does for it is two things. One is Roger II's own death fairly soon after these events. Um, And what this creates is a political vacuum um, because he's the first person of now his line of the Hopevilles to have ruled all of these southern Italian domains. So there's still questions of legitimacy um, uh, and 
the situation takes a good number of years for his son, William, to kind of settle everything and really establish himself uh, as ruler. So that, that creates a big distraction for the Norman court. And in those circumstances, they, of course, prioritize their core domains in Sicily and southern Italy. And only after uh, his son's successor, William, has secured those can he really worry about North Africa. And by then, it's too late. By then, there's uh, a, a siege of Madia happening, and it, it's all falling apart. The other crucial pieces of this puzzle, of course, is what's happening in North Africa. And that is we have on the one hand the Almohads, who have been gaining in power and authority to the west of uh, the uh, of of this province of Africa. They are uh, a new Islamic power. They do not tolerate Christian minorities. They are they are particularly fervent, um, and therefore have a real desire to oust uh, a Norman presence there. So they are pushing in on the east equally. The Fatimids, who'd kind of acquiesced to Roger coming over in the first place, become increasingly chary of having somebody who now has all of southern Italy, Sicily, and now North Africa on their doorstep, and do start rethinking how how, how comfortable they are with this anyway. So while they might have been able to help him uh, them, uh, they choose not to and are more than happy to kind of see the Almohads eat up what had been this previous province. So you've got pressures in North Africa that require an immediate and strong response, and then politics at the Sicilian court, which mean that it's impossible to provide that. So a, a short-lived venture by the sound of things. I, I'm wondering, just you mentioned the Crusades earlier. How does this fit into that bigger story of the Crusades? They obviously started at the end of the 11th century um, with with clearly an element of uh, of religious tension there. That's probably an understatement. But how does how does this uh, episode fit into that bigger picture? So the interesting thing is almost certainly there is, you know, hints of this. The Pope's very keen on this because it's providing a Christian bulwark against an, uh, a particularly Islamic uh, power in the form of the Almohads. But the key thing to emphasize is that certainly from Roger's perspective, this isn't primarily a crusade. He's not primarily uh, galvanizing his troops based upon religious grounds. And one of the things the population is worried about in North Africa when he takes it, of course, is being ruled by Christians. And the first thing he does is emphasize that the local Muslim population will be able to continue to practice their faith as previously, just paying a kind of a nominal head tax, which is the standard thing that uh, most Islamic powers other than the Almohads do for Christians. So it may not be great news, but it's it's really not bad news at all for them. And uh, for example, in Madia, a large portion of the population seems to leave when, when, when the Normans initially conquer it, and then they come back when they hear about the even-handed treatment. So it's very much in his interest not to push that too much. But the Crusades come into this in a rather different way, in that Rogers also drew, um, uh, uh, takes part in the Second Crusade. And in 1147 and 1148, he's striking against, in fact, Byzantium, another Christian power, but not a Catholic Christian power, not a Latin right one, um, in that context. And so that's another thing that does serve to start distracting him just as he's only finished conquering North Africa, or indeed is just finishing it up. So there is that kind of element uh, uh, that's part of this kind of wider story here. Can we, can we take the story back to uh, to Normandy and England for a second and, and think about what's happening there. So in England in the mid-12th century, um, there was some some fairly serious military things going on which probably distracted attention. But but did the Norman people of, of England and Normandy have any interest or knowledge of what was happening in, in Sicily and in, in North Africa at the time? They absolutely do. But one of the kind of long-term stories of Norman expansion is that it's best sort of thought of probably as a diaspora, not so dissimilar in some respects from modern diasporas. And like those, you get different flavours. And so there's a certain point at which it's, we're probably better off speaking of them as Sicilian Normans or Italo-Normans. You'll see these terms in the scholarship. That's not what they called themselves. But certainly by um, the later 12th century, they're just calling themselves 
Sicilians and Apulians and things like that. Uh, but there certainly is this awareness. So in the 1120s, William of Malmesbury is writing, and that's when he's talking about how the conqueror was inspired uh, by Guiscard's feats. And equally on the Sicilian side, we have, for example, Roger II is said to have preferred courtiers who could speak French, which is an interesting Italian thing because he must speak Italian. He must speak the local dialect there. Uh, he may well speak some Arabic and some Greek as well. But he's choosing and has as his favorites those who are Francophone, and clearly that's his native tongue. And their names also are very French and Francophone. So Roger, uh, Robert, these sorts of names, they're not local traditional Italian names at all. So there is still this kind of uh, awareness of this connection. And uh, it certainly shared the person who particularly in the British Isles, other than William of Malmesbury, is alive to this is Orderic Vitalis, who's another writer around the same time, 1120s, 1130s, who writes a great deal about the exploits of the Normans in southern Italy. Some of it very interesting and quite useful historically, some of it absolutely rubbish, but very interesting for an awareness that there are these connections and that these are uh, their fellow countrymen to some extent. But the kind of, it's a slow drift apart. Uh, and I'd say by the end of the 12th century, early and middle, we're at a point where there's still a fair bit of affinity. By the end, we're reaching a kind of point of no return where the Normans in England are increasingly seeing themselves as English, even in fact, when they're in Wales or uh, uh, in uh, Ireland. Um and equally, the Normans in southern Italy are now starting to see themselves as Apulian, Calabrian, Sicilian. Last couple of points. Um, so did this the, this short-lived African kingdom, if, if we can call it that, um, leave much of a legacy there um, it, amongst the, the cities and people there, or indeed back in Sicily? What, what, was this, what was this impact, if anything? So in terms of its longer-term impact, there really actually isn't much. So it's kind of a more of a historical curiosity and a what-if scenario. But in a sense, that's not so surprising. If we actually look at the longer history of North Africa as a province, it's an area that's actually been conquered a lot by this point since the fall of Rome, but not seen massive structural change in many respects. So what we have initially, um, uh, when the old Roman Empire is falling, it's conquered by the Vandals, who take it over, though, and run it much as the Romans had run it before. Tax remains in place. The, the systems of government and bureaucracy on a day-to-day -day basis, if you're a local farmer, uh, you don't notice a big difference, just as probably many, many of us in uh, Western democracy don't necessarily notice overnight when the government changes, as much as we may be happy or sad. Um, in a similar way, when uh, it's first taken over by Islamic powers, then thereafter, structurally speaking, all of those things remain in place. And there remains indeed a large Christian minority right up to when Roger himself conquers. It's not fully uh, Muslim. So in terms of all of this, actually, it's a province that can be very, very well run and indeed can be quite easily conquered because it has very robust structures of rule, strong uh, systems of taxation that simply survive these. So before Roger took it, it still looked remarkably like in some respects the old Roman province, uh, at least in terms of, some of how some of the government ran. And after Roger, it continued to do so. Can I finish up by by trying to lure you into a counterfactual if you're if you're willing? Um, Absolutely. So so it's it's an obvious easy one. What would have happened if this uh, Norman kingdom had survived in North Africa for longer than the, the short period it did? So well, the odds were always against it. I think we also shouldn't assume that it was inevitable. It did require the confluence of really two sets of events: political, political, certain political constellations in North Africa, plus a succession crisis and on political instability in Sicily. And if you hadn't had those, there is a chance it would have survived. And our best point of comparison there is, in fact, to look at Sicily, which had had a good few centuries of Muslim rule before uh, uh, the Hauteville's and the Normans took it. Um, and there, 
We can see very similar policies are enacted immediately after conquest, toleration of Muslim minorities, allowing them uh, a significant political say. But there's also this gentle and over time ever firmer pressure towards becoming Christian and where possible, Latin right, i.e. Catholic Christian. And what we see is by already by the end of the 12th century, we're starting to get some uh, 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 signs of real tension um, and real pressures on uh, uh, increasingly small Muslim minorities. And as we move into the 13th century, we start to get evictions, we start to get forced conversion and things like that. So uh, the face of authority becomes ever more chauvinistic in terms of that. And eventually we move to a situation where you have to be Christian and where there's a lot of pressure, in fact, to be Latin right, even not Greek. And that's what we would have expected in North Africa. It might not have ever got quite as far, being just a little bit further away from uh, the core uh, parts of Western Christendom. But it certainly is entirely conceivable that in a different historical uh, universe that North Africa would have become part of the Catholic world and would have remained so potentially into the 19th, 20th centuries, just as it's entirely conceivable that Sicily could have remained Muslim, that these are actually areas that are really quite close to each other. Um, and as I say, you know, Sicily is nearer to core parts of North Africa than it is to Rome. Well, it's a, it's a really interesting story. It's one sort of very much framed by geography, I guess, isn't it? It's, it feels like it's really important, as you've mentioned earlier, sort of the gaze of the Normans moving from the Balkans to the to the south. It feels like geography is is really a key a key aspect to this story. Would you agree with that? Yes, geography is very important to it, as is trade, and indeed maritime power. So one of the things for the Normans as they moved to southern Italy, the Normans traditionally have not been a maritime power particularly. Uh, and when they come to southern Italy, they need to become one, as they, particularly as they start fighting um, uh, the Islamic forces there and the Byzantines. But by the time we come to Roger II, they really are a leading Mediterranean power in Europe. And so it's this that allows them to do this in the first place, but it's also this that goes side by side with their trade interests. So it's all of that that's part of the package. It's that Sicily is in closely linked by trade already to North Africa. That means that there need to be political relationships. That means they know when the Zerids are getting weak. They can see the opportunities. They have the sort of navy necessary. They've already taken Malta. They've already locked horns at times of the Byzantines, another great naval power. So they, they've got all these building blocks in place. Um, and as you say, geographically, they have that proximity to North Africa. And particularly once you have a decent navy um, uh, and significant um, uh, merchant power as well it's easy to maintain those links, just as easy, if not easier, than across land. Well, Empires of the Normans, Makers of Europe, Conquerors of Asia, is published by John Murray, and it's published at the end of June. Covers a lot more ground than what we've just talked about here, but I thought that was a, a particularly interesting episode, and you've written a, a brilliant feature about it for BBC History magazine as well, haven't you? Yes, indeed. That was Levi Roach. Empires of the Normans, Makers of Europe, Conquerors of Asia is published now by John Murray. You can also find a feature from Levi on this topic in the July issue of BBC History magazine. 